Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Good morning, everyone. If I'm guessing I'm not the first, but if I am, I want to welcome all of you here today. I'm glad you're joining us. We're in the middle of our series called If Christ is My Lord. And I want to start with an amazing analogy. Some of you may have read the book before. It's popular right now called Atomic Habits by James Clear. Um, I remember it's a book that I read and Colton was a sophomore in high school. And I knew Colton was a, a student who loved to read and loved to better himself. And I remembered saying, hey, there's this book called Atomic Habits. You should read it. And uh, so let's go to the illustration. In 1965, there was a man named Laszlo Polgar. And he was looking to prove his theory, his belief, which was that genius is not born he said, but it is educated. He believed it so much that he wanted to test his theory on his own children. But there was a problem. He did not have any children. So he was writing letters to this woman named Clara, and he said he needed a wife and kids for his theory. And they decided eventually that they were going to use the game of chess as their experiment. And they created a plan as a couple for creating chess prodigies. This is a picture. This is a real story. The kids would be homeschooled and the house would be filled with chess tables, chess books, pictures of famous chess players, and all day, every day was spent playing chess. Laszlo successfully courted Clara and their three daughters were Susan, Sophia, and Judith. Susan began as a four-year-old and was beating adults by six months. For context, Landry Joe is almost five. So Landry Joe beating adults at chess, which honestly, I would believe that. Okay. <laughs> Sophia, the middle child, did even better. By the age 14, she was a world champion, and a few years later, she was a grand champion. By the way, don't really know what all those levels of chess are, but grand champion sounds pretty good. At least it is in rodeo, so... Um, <laughs> Judith, by age five, was the best, or Judith, who would become the greatest of all the daughters, could beat her father at chess by age five. At age 12, she was the youngest player ever listed in the top 100 chess players in the world. At 15 and four months, she became the youngest grandmaster of all time, younger than someone y'all may have heard of before, Bobby Fischer, a famous chess prodigy. For 27 years, 27 years, she was the number one ranked women's chess player in the world. And you might be asking yourself, did these girls hate chess? Did these girls resent their parents? Did they eventually someday go to someone else's house and go, what is this, you know? What is a, a doll? What is a, you know, what is a little toy car? What, what, are, what are these things? And they came back bitter at their parents? Did they, they hate their parents for being groomed to play chess? But in interviews, these are the girls as adults, in interviews, if you ask the girls, they claim that they loved their upbringing. In interviews, they talked about how their childhood was entertaining, not grueling. They loved chess. They couldn't get enough of it. One of the stories that Laszlo told about his middle daughter playing chess is that in the middle of the night, he found her in the bathroom with the light on playing chess. And she said, he said to her, Honey, leave the pieces alone. Go to bed. And she replied, Daddy, they won't leave me alone. The Polgar girls, they grew up in a setting that prioritized chess above all else. They were praised for it, and they were rewarded for how they did. 
In their world, an obsession with chess was normal. Here's a quote from James Clear in the book. Whatever habits are normal in your culture, or I'll say in your setting, are among the most attractive behaviors you'll find. We do not choose our earliest habits. We imitate them. Let me read that again. We do not choose our earliest habits. We imitate them. From who, you might be asking? Probably from your family. So today, this lesson that we're going to talk about today is, if Christ is my Lord, he has got to be Lord of my house. And I use the word house specifically because this whole lesson, I'm going to talk about it from two angles. Yes, he needs to be Lord in your physical home if you are blessed enough to have a physical home. And he needs to be Lord of your house as in your family. You know, that's a way people used to say it. This is my family house, you know, the the line of your family. So we're going to be looking at it from both angles. And the question that this illustration is hopefully leading you to think about is how is my home pointing my family and guests towards Christ? When people come into the presence of my home and my family, are they being nudged towards Jesus? A nudge is a word also from the Atomic Habits book, talking about little things you put in place in your life that nudge you towards good habits. A good example would be if you wish you went and ran more, a nudge is taking your running shoes and putting them by the door. You wake up, you see them, and you're nudged, maybe I'm going to do that. And then you check the temperature and you don't. No, I'm just kidding. But that's a nudge. Another nudge would be, you know, if you put a sticky note above your mirror that says, you know, don't forget to water the garden. That's a nudge. It helped you make that habit. And so the question I want you to think about is when you think about your home, what are the nudges that you are creating for your family that are... Uh, as as the obviously the this Polgar family, they're putting famous pictures of chess players up. A nudge. I want to be like that person someday. Who are the pictures that you have up in your house? Or let me give you some let me give you some worldly examples. If the person who cooks the meals in your house is feeling particularly healthy, how is the rest of the house going to eat? <laughs> kind of healthy, right? If Catherine is doing Whole 30, I'm going to eat Whole 30. Is it because I decided I can't wait to be holding? No, it's because she's the one that's preparing the meals, right? And another worldly example is that when one person in a family is maybe really gung-ho about uh, a certain book or thing, and they're reading about it, they're talking about it all the time, if, if someone in a family maybe has really fallen in love with a sport called disc golf, then there's a chance that other people in the family, whether they like it or not, are talking and watching YouTube videos about disc golf and hearing things about disc golf. If someone has really gotten into exercising, there's a chance that the other people in the family are going to somehow be nudged towards, hey, maybe I could exercise. Maybe I could be doing that. Now let me t- talk about some like Christian nudges, Christian examples. On Easter... How much are you reading and talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection on par with hunting eggs? What is the level? Do you have a big old thing for egg hunting and a little thing for talking about the the death and the resurrection? On Christmas, are you always doing a lot of great Christmas traditions that involve driving around and seeing lights, that involve reading Twas the Night Before Christmas, that watching a Christmas story. In my family, we'd always, one of our Christmas movies was always uh, the Muppet Christmas Carol. You know, are you watching that one? 
how's the balance with talking about the birth of Christ, talking about the nativity, talking about singing Christmas carols to go bless people? What are the nudges in your home? Or do you have a tradition when your family drives around, do you all listen to the radio? What's on the radio? Is it more like... Now, by the way, I'm not saying it's bad if you're listening to Brad Paisley, but are you listening to Jesus music as much or more than you're listening to Brad Paisley? Or, or whoever you listen to, you know? I'm not, Brad is not getting free advertising for this sermon. Also, I want you to think about whenever you are deciding what activities you're going to do, there comes a time for all of us where an activity that we want to do and a church Jesus thing we want to do are going to be at the same time. How much are you demonstrating a priority in that? By the way, I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, you better always miss that, that thing for church. You better always... I'm not that person, but I think you kind of are still saying something if the scale is really out of balance. Does that make sense? Okay. I am a fan, this is the last one, I believe, and you're going to see me quote it later, I am a big fan of people covering their house in messages of Christ. You know, as for me and my house, we're going to read that next, we will serve the Lord. I love, you know, um, may God bless this home. I love all that stuff. A cross wall, it's great. But when you die someday and your children are doing your eulogy, they are not going to say, I loved our cross wall. They are going to care about how much that cross wall was a sign of who your family was, not, oh, well, we're Christians, we've got a cross on the wall. Does that make sense? So you've got to be really careful. If the extent of your Christian home is the fact that you've got a few Christian decorations up, it's not much. But if that's an outflow of the fact that you've created this space to indoctrinate your family into faith, into Christ, then that's a good thing. In Joshua 24, I already referenced the passage, but we get this beautiful verse where Joshua is trying to call the people together again at Shechem, and he's trying to get the people to say, let's recommit to living with God. Let's recommit to this covenant. And he knew that when he did this, he knew that there would be some people that are going to say, I don't want to recommit to Jesus. Or, well, Jesus hadn't come yet. I don't want to recommit to God. I've got all these other gods. I've got these other things competing for my lordship. And Joshua says in verse 14 through 15, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River. He doesn't have any doubt that there are other gods. He's not questioning that. He's saying you've got to get rid of those beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors served before the, beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Next thing to talk about. Okay, yeah, perfect. Then that's, that's the first section. If you're a point taker, the first thing is, how is my home communicating, nudging people in my own family and visitors and guests towards Christ? Now the second one, we're going to read two kind of long passages from Acts, and I think you'll maybe see uh, where I'm going with it. This first one from Acts 10 is the famous story where Paul or Peter sees a dream, and he sees a dream that he's supposed to go visit this guy, Cornelius. And Cornelius has a dream that he's supposed to have someone come visit him. And so Peter goes and he is preaching to Cornelius. And this is a big deal because Cornelius is not a Jew. He is a Gentile. And up until this point in Acts, we have not had the, the 
growth into the, the Gentile world yet. And here Peter is, and he's like, am I supposed to go preach to these Gentiles? And yes, God is telling you to go to them. So here we go in verse 44. He finally you know, preaches the gospel to Cornelius, and while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised Jewish believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been given out, had been poured out to these Gentiles. For they, had heard, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. I'm going to go to the next passage. And like I said, I want you to see if you can see the connection. In Acts 16, about midnight, Paul and Silas, they're praying in jail, and they're singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Basically, was like, let's get this over with. If I'm the guard in charge of all these people and they get out, I'm, I'm a dead man anyway. So he draws his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. You almost get the impression, this is what's so cool about this story, you almost get the impression that Paul has just been freed by God, but because of his convictions about God, he stays to save this man's life. He could have run off. He could have been like, sweet, we've been praying, singing, God freed us, let's go. But he sees this man is about to kill himself, his enemy, and he's like, wait, wait, we got to stay. we got to save this guy because he's literally about to kill himself. And if we stay as prisoners, maybe he won't get in trouble. So he, they decide to stay. Don't harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer called for lights. I wonder what that meant, you know? Like lights and torches, I guess? No, no light switches back then, right? The jailer called for lights and rushed in and fell, trembling before Paul and Silas. And he then brought them out and asked, first thing, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in, this, in his house. At the hour of the night, the jailer took at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Two slides in a row ended. You and your your household. He and his whole household. Now, this is something I've talked about before. Our culture is different from that culture in a lot of ways. And one of the biggest ways is we are a very individualistic culture here. I get to decide for myself what I want to do. And if you told someone that, they would say, yeah, that sounds right. In that culture, what the family did, the family did. There was not you making your decision, you making your decision. It was, this is what our family will do. And so we have two stories in Acts here where a leader of a household comes to know Jesus and as a result, the whole family is now a part of, the, of that Jesus movement. It doesn't say, and then Peter went to little Tommy and talked to little Tommy about Jesus and asked Tommy, do you believe? And then Jesus went to um, the jailer's wife and said, now i got to talk to you about the gospel. I want to know what you believe. What do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus? Okay, you can get baptized too. You don't get any of that. What you get is this. When a leader of a home follows Christ, the family, not always, often, is next. 
And I want to be real careful how I say this because this is not the place in the sermon where for any of you who have family who are not with Jesus, you need to feel like you need to beat yourselves up. That is not the case. We all know that life is complex. We all know that things happen and people make their own choices. And so if you're sitting here feeling guilt and shame over, oh, my family who has fallen away, it's me. It's my fault. I don't want you to do that. But what I do want you to hear, though, is the power of the leader of a household choosing to be a follower of Christ and how that will have a ripple effect into that home. When they came to know Jesus, the whole household became Christian. And I think this is something where... I am, I am going to say something. I've been going back and forth about how much to step on a toe or not. But I do believe this is a place where there needs to be a call to the men in the room today. Because there is sadly a long history in churches of single spiritual mothers. Women who are not single in reality, but when they show up at a church, it's them with their kids because their husband is not there. Because their husband doesn't care about it. And that, that, praise God for those mothers. But that is not how God wants it to be. God wants it to be a call that when you, I want you to reflect on your family. And I want you to think, ideally, children are growing up where they feel like whenever you ask them, who is the greater spiritual influence in your home, your mom or your dad? The hope is, is that like me, I get to go, man, both of them. I don't know how I could pick between my mom or my dad. I don't know how I could pick between waking up and seeing my dad praying beside the bed and how could I pick between Saturday mornings going into the living room and seeing my mom reading her Bible on her chair? How do I pick? But sadly, for a lot of us, it's very easy, a lot of people, to go, oh, my mom, no question. And that's not how it's supposed to be. I'll give you one more example, and I don't mean this to be, you know, it's just an example. But I was listening to a preacher recently whose dad passed away, and on Father's Day he said one of my dad's greatest gifts was that he was a bad singer and he sang loud in church. (laughs) And he said, I grew up imitating my dad singing in church. And I want you to think to yourself, if any of you guys in the room are guys who don't sing during service, I get it. Some of us, sometimes once you get to a certain age, it just, it's not, my Nana, she, she doesn't, she's always laments, like, I, I want to sing, but it, my voice can't do it anymore. But I want you to think, for those of you who, that's not the case, do you sing? I want you to think, did your dad sing? Because I'm guessing most of you guys who don't sing, your dad didn't really sing out much. And for you guys in the room who do sing out, How many of you did your dad sing out? I want you to think about that, okay? We, as James Clear says, we do not choose our earliest habits, we imitate them. And we've spent a lot of breath in this tradition on the verse, sing and make music with your heart. And that is mostly about, are you singing out loud? Okay? Does that make sense? So, I want you to know, this is not me, Drew, saying, oh man, I've got to... All you guys out here are singing. you got to join the choir. That's not what I'm telling you. But what I am telling you is think about the fact that when the leader of the home is the one that is charging towards Christ, it does affect the whole household. The next one, um, the next one is this. I'm not going to read all from Ephesians 5. I'm not going to read all from Colossians 3. But all of those are long passages that say, Husbands, love your wives this way. Wives, love your husbands and your family this way. Slaves, live this way. Because back then, part of your household were your indentured servants. 
It says, children, live this way. And guess what? In all of those categories, to us in 2023, a lot of them do sound pretty barbaric and pretty, like, what? That's so outdated, and I get that. But what you need to know, every time we talk about those household codes in Colossians, Ephesians, and different things, one of the core things you need to hear is that to the original readers of those letters, those household codes were radically, radically kind and good to wives, slaves, and children in a way that no one else had ever been. Today, it feels like it's belittling. Back then, for a wife to read what... Paul is calling for husbands to do would be like, oh, if we could do this, this would be the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Does that make sense? The call in those passages, even if they feel not like that to us, we have to remember they were radically an example of this is how, as you'll see from this quote, if Christ is your Lord, you cannot do home and family life the same as you were before. It has to be more Christ-centered. It has to be more loving. It has to be more servant-minded. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, dying for them. That is love. That is service. That is radically different than the time before where it was, hey, husbands, your wives are basically just your property. They're like livestock. They're a step above a cow. And use them for what you need them for and get, get what you need, whatever, and all the rest takes care of itself. That's what it was. And Paul is saying, you can't live like that anymore. If Christ is the Lord of your house, it has to change how you live in your home and in your family. So two questions to ask to think about before I move on from this. This is one that I was thinking about as I was preparing this sermon. One thing I totally understand if some of you are asking this is, Drew, what about for me if I'm single? What about for me if I'm uh, a widow or a widower? What about me if I'm divorced? What about me if I'm not in a traditional home? What is? And I hope you heard, and I hope this is true, but for most all of you who that applies to, you still have a home, and you still have a family in some way. Your home is still a place where hopefully you are showing the hospitality and love and nudging people towards Christ when you have guests over. For those of you who still have a family, how are you showing the Lordship of Christ at Thanksgiving when everyone's at each other's throats? Are you doing that or are you not? Are you the one where when everyone walks in, they're like, thank goodness she's here. It's going to help deflate everything. Or are you the person that walks in and they go, oh no. You know, everybody put up the knives, you know, <laughs> right? Because you're still a part of that house and that family. You still have a way to be that nudging influence towards your family. And the other question that I also could see people asking is, because this is a big deal in the Bible, if I was preaching this in the first century, you would have a lot of people say, Drew, this is great and all, but I lost my family when I came to know Jesus. And not all of you have experienced that, but some of you have probably felt, when I really came to know Christ and surrendered to Him, my family exiled me. My family said, you're not really welcome here anymore. You don't fit in anymore. We don't really agree with you anymore. You're out. And this is where I also have good news because one of the key things that Jesus came to teach us is to say that when I come into your life, you will, it will separate families. It will separate fathers and sons. It will separate mothers and daughters. It's going to be divisive. But thankfully, through Christ, we are given a new family and a new household that we get to be a part of. And this thing that we do every Sunday morning is just a taste of what it means to be a part of a new family. 
John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you to come live in my home, be a part of my family. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And in Ephesians 2.19, Paul says, You are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. If any of you would like to have any prayer requests, if any of you feel like there's anything you would like your church family to be praying for you about as you're going through something, we want to be that family that walks together. Elders are going to be standing at the doors. And if any of you would like to know what it means to... If you felt like a foreigner or a stranger and you want to know what it feels like to be a part of God's family, we'd also love to talk to you about that as we stand and sing this song.